Let us pray together. Gracious God, this morning we again give you thanks for your word, which brings our souls to life, brings our souls to light, brings our souls to love. We pray for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I forgot to look at my bulletin this morning, and I had a little show and tell for all our kids. But they all just left. (laughs) So how about if I have a little show and tell for all the adults? If you... uh, can see what's in my hand. It's a uh, VW Bug, circa 1970. And what I was going to say to our kids is that many of them have seen it and played with it already. And I thought I'd tell you why I have it on my desk. You see, when my family uh, lived in Jerusalem back in the uh, 70s, this was our car. It was uh, actually a a lighter shade of of blue, but it's close enough. And all five of us would pile into this car and go exploring the Holy Land. We'd go to Hebron and visit friends. We'd go to Jericho. We'd uh, sometimes go up to Nazareth to see Bob and Nancy. That was always special. And near Bob and Nancy in uh, near Nazareth is a mountain called Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, and this is the traditional site of the transfiguration of Jesus. And uh, I was maybe eight or nine years old at that time, and I'll never forget our VW Buck going on the hairpin curves, back and forth, back and forth, up 1,800 feet to the top of that mountain. And uh, Bob and Nancy were reminding me yesterday that from the top of that mountain, you can see all over in every direction. You see, things in Palestine are much closer than we often think. For example, if Mount Tabor were right here, right smack in the middle of Lancaster City, then Nazareth would be in Landisville, and the Sea of Galilee would begin at the town of Intercourse. So just to give you a sense of how very close these locations are in Scripture. In our Gospel today, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his inner circle of three, up a high mountain to be by themselves. But before we look at this story, we dare not miss the very crucial story that comes right before it. Jesus asks his disciples, if you look at the story that comes right before the transfiguration, what may be the very most important question in all of the New Testament and is certainly probably one of the crucial questions of our own lives as well. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter then gives him the answer. He says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus then shares with Peter the shocking news of his coming death and then his being raised three days later. Now, Peter is completely scandalized by this answer. He got the right answer, but he didn't understand it, you see. And so, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Everybody knows, dear Jesus, that the Messiah will come conquering with a raised sword. Not with nail-pierced hands. And Jesus then responds to Peter with equal intensity. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he calls Peter to take up his cross now and to follow him. He calls Peter to make his pattern of dying and rising the pattern of his own life as well. And you might think about your own life right now. In what ways are you called to die and to rise to newness of life? How is that pattern present right now in your lives? It's six days after this very difficult conversation that Jesus leads Peter and the other two up the mountain to be apart and by themselves. Apart and by themselves. Dear friends, what's this code for in the Gospels? What are they doing when they go apart and by themselves? Praying. Praying. It's while they are praying together that Jesus' face suddenly becomes radiant and dazzling white. And the, Mos- and the disciples then see Moses the recipient of God's law. And then they see Elijah, who, by the way, left behind his chariot of fire. And they see these two speaking with Jesus. Remember that Jesus has been telling His disciples and teaching that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He tells them this, and now they see this reality. As they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah, these three in harmonious conversation with one another. And then, as sometimes happens in these high, high places, a cloud comes sweeping over the mountain. But, dear friends, it's no ordinary cloud. It's more like the cloud that Jeannie mentioned at the outset that envelops Mount Sinai when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. The cloud that suddenly fills the holy tabernacle and later on the temple. It's a cloud that both reveals God's presence and preserves God's mystery. 
It's a cloud that both reveals God's presence and yet preserves God's mystery. And it's in this cloud now that the disciples hear God's voice say, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. Earlier, God had spoken very similar words at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. But the three disciples, if the commentaries are correct, were not there. They weren't there yet. And so for them, this is brand new news. What is happening here is that these three are being given a glimpse of Jesus' fuller identity. Seeing his divine glory shine through his humanity. They're given a glimpse of the world beyond the limitations of time and space. They are on the front end of discovering, dear friends, as we heard in 2 Corinthians 4, that to look into the face of Jesus is to see the unveiled face of God. And that's good news. Because to look in the face of Jesus is to see grace, is to see love, is to see peace is to see who God really is. And then right after our transfiguration story in Mark 9.9, we find Jesus telling them, and this comes very abruptly, not to talk about anything that they've just seen. Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why? Is it because until they are able to place this dazzling experience in the context of His death and resurrection, they will only misuse and misinterpret this experience? Is it because that until this is placed in the context of Jesus' suffering love and self-giving love, they will only be tempted to use this to enhance their own power and privilege and position? Remember, they were jostling for seats in Jesus' new cabinet. And will they only build booths and churches, and cathedrals to enshrine what they alone have experienced? Some of you know that I'm rather crazy about birds. And one of you recently sent me a link to a live webcam That has caused me to lose a lot of time at work. (laughs) It's focused on a pair of nesting bald eagles. 
in nearby Hanover, one of the 270 pairs of bald eagles here in our state. Thank God the number is steadily increasing year by year. And sitting at your desk, I don't know who I'm talking about, you can check in to see what these eagles are doing any time of day. This morning I checked in and I got a little seasick because the camera was going back and forth with the wind. Sometimes that nest is empty. Sometimes if you're really, really lucky, you'll see one of the eagles swooping in, carrying in a bunch of twigs or straw or a squirrel for breakfast. And dear friends, if you have kids here up here, things are going to get really, really exciting here very soon, sometime between now and April, when when the mother lays her eggs. So stay posted. I sent you the link. Now why am I telling you this? story. Well, as I reflected on the story of Jesus' transfiguration this past week, I found myself wondering, what would a webcam up on Mount Tabor actually show us of the scene that we heard about in the Gospel? Would we actually see the radiant light Would we actually see Moses and Elijah? Now, I'm not asking these questions because I don't believe in this pivotal story in Jesus' life. I do believe it. But in recent years, just as Lauren Swartzendruber talked about last week, I've become less certain about many things and more certain about a few central things like love and grace and the unseen presence of God. And I've also come to notice that there are things that happen around us all the time that some of us can perceive and see and other of us cannot. Why is that? Is this perhaps what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1.18 when he talks about seeing with the eyes of the heart? Recently, I attended a week of training in contemplative prayer at a retreat center near State College. And following what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, We entered into our inner room, we closed the door, and we prayed to God in the silence. For two or three hours every day, all we did was sit and consent to God's presence and action within. And interestingly, over the centuries, Christian contemplatives have called this Entering the cloud of unknowing. That place of silence and darkness where we're finally able to become aware of God's presence and sometimes even to hear God's voice. 
Now, our instructors taught us something that has stayed with me powerfully ever since. They told us this. We have no human faculty to perceive the mysterious transformation that God is bringing to us during these times of prayer. We have no human faculty to perceive what God is doing. What would a webcam shot of our group in State College show? Probably a a group of people sitting together with their eyes closed in complete silence. What would a web shot show of the many things that we do together here at East Chestnut Street? And yet, with the eyes of our heart opened, we can see that God is slowly transforming us, ministering through us, and shaping the character of Jesus in us. Willard Swartley, my dear seminary prof, says that the ultimate truth about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is that he is that statement that we heard. This is my beloved son. And it's revealed in three different places in the Gospel. In our story today on the mountaintop, at Jesus' baptism, and by the soldier standing at the foot of the cross. And if you read our story carefully today, you'll notice that this crucial revelation from God doesn't come when the disciples are dazzled by the light. When does it come? It comes when they are overshadowed by the cloud. The cloud of God's presence. And if you've ever been in a cloud, maybe in an airplane or up on a a mountaintop, you know that it can be a mighty disorienting experience, can it? You can even lose your sense of what is up or down. God has the habit, it's been said, of transforming us not by extending a vision of enlightenment that we can welcome, with open arms, but sometimes by confounding our most well-developed formulas for understanding what God is up to and what we have to do with it. And in our story today, God or Jesus is confounding and turning upside down Peter's images of who the Messiah will be and how God actually works in our world. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful preparation for our coming season of Lent, which begins in three days here on Ash Wednesday. Because of all themes for our year, this year it is upside down and inside out. Sounds like uh, 
I think Daryl said it sounds like a Diana Ross song. Upside down and inside out. And we might want to think that in our world filled with racism and violence and greed, is God actually turning us upside down or right side up? During this season, we want to listen in a new way to the voice of Jesus. For his pattern of dying and rising to become the pattern of our lives. And we want to develop this ability to see with the eyes of our heart. So that we're able to see the image of God even in the most unlikely faces of the least and the last and the lost, and able to say even to them, you are the beloved daughter, you are the beloved son of God. Amen.